you know, praying for one is, is one of those uh, prayers that's simple. Um, and we often content, we tend to take simple things and put them in the immature category. Um, and we tend to take simple things, simple ideas, and we don't really understand the whole depth of it. Simplicity is one of those things that will allow air to go, fr- uh, to go flow through the house and, 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 and kind of clean things up, feel like things are lighter, feel like things are freer. Um, but really praying for one is one of those things. It's simple. But it's not, a spot, it's not in a spot where things are immature. So praying for one is a simple prayer. It's, this God, it's, this says a, it's a prayer that says, God, give me one person to share your love with today. And, and what I love about this prayer is praying for one literally ignites and, and, and brings together all of the aspects of a disciple. You will be a disciple in your worship. You will be a disciple in your community. You will be a disciple in your mission um, when, you're, when you are actually praying for one because it will use all three of those in order uh, to show fruit in the, in, in the midst of your daily life. But, but what happens is over the course of a church's life as they pray for one, and this is a prayer that God wants to answer. God will answer this prayer if you start your day off with this simple prayer. Um, many of us will, will kind of start the day with maybe some chair time, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so of, of reading the scriptures, you, you know, drinking some coffee, maybe drinking the coffee and reading some scriptures, especially on a day like today um, where you drink more coffee than read more scripture. Um, but you have, a, you have a, an opportunity to, to, to align your heart with God's heart when you pray this prayer. God wants to answer this prayer for you. It's really up to whether we want to obey uh, because we will see one person that needs to hear God's love every single day if we pray this prayer intentionally and earnestly. And I believe that if you do this, it will be one of the greatest strengths and growths in your spiritual life that you've ever experienced. Many of us will go to reading the Bible, we'll go to, um, we'll go to reading the Bible, we'll go to meditating, we'll go to prayer um, in order to feel close to God. Many of us will, will be t- together, if, especially if you're of an, of an extroverted type, being together with other people, talking about the things of God that will make us feel closer to God. Many times we'll serve uh, you know, in places like the Hope Center or, or in other areas of the church in order to feel close to God. Um, but sometimes when you look at all three of those things, we, we tend to stay in our channels. But pray for one literally bring the, all of those together in a unique way. And so today, what, what happens though when a church actually does that and, and God begins to answer your prayer because you're intentionally praying for one and asking God to share his love with every day, the church begins to grow. Weird, Right? the church begins to grow because people are being shown God's love and people are engaging with who God is and, and the church begins to grow. And now many times, especially in different parts of the country, this is seen as scary and bad. And sometimes when you think of church growth, they say, oh, pastor just wants to, you know, get the church to crowd to be bigger again. Have you, how many times have you said that? Don't raise your hands. Yeah, no. yeah, Chris, just thank you for being honest, Chris. I appreciate that. How many times does a pastor just wants the church to grow again? And, and I, would, I would just challenge you today, instead of hearing it like that, and we're going to try to answer some of those pushbacks today, instead of hearing it like that, what if you heard my heart and heard my desire to see a lot of people be shown the love of God? Here's the deal. Many times we kind of find our place. We find our spots Um, in in a church. We find our spots in a community. We find our spots in many different places. And we think, this is perfect, just like it is right now. How many of you have been there? Many times we do that in our house. Our house is perfect right now. 
our cars are perfect right now. Everything's perfect right now. And, we, and we, what we tend to do in those moments, instead of doing the things that will make things better or things that, that will make things actually increase in value or whatever, we'll just do things that we think are increasing in value and we tend to not grow as people. And so, but that, that's actually what, what Jesus, I think, will push back against. And he pushes back against it in this really interesting story. But as a church for us today, I think there's a simple question. If we want to be a church that only God can get the credit for, will we actually do the things that only God can get the credit for? Will we do the things that only God can get the credit for as we begin to pray for one and grow? Will we actually do the things that God has asked us to do in the Bible? Like, it, this, these aren't things that Pastor Brandon's making up, but they're things that, that are just in the New Testament, that if we were to take the New Testament seriously and do it, not just read it, but actually do it, are we able to do that yet? Are we in a spot of maturity and discipleship to actually begin to do these things and see what will come from it? Now, that's, that's kind of the question. What, if we want to be a church that only God can get the credit for, will we do the things that only God can get the credit for? And praying for one, I think, will take all the things that we think we can do and put it at the feet of Christ and say, God, show me the person that you need to, be given, that you need to give love to today and let me be that person for you. And so we're going to continue to see that, though, in Matthew 25. So grab your, grab your Bibles that were on your seat. And, and there's this really challenging story in Matthew 25. Um, every time I read it, I, I, it's, it's, it, it kind of takes me, uh, kind of realigns me in different ways. And so you want to go to page 823 on that, on that Bible, or you can go on your app, um, or you can listen along. That's fine, too. Um, if you are new today, that is our gift to you. That Bible is our gift to you if you don't have one. Um, and if you uh, do have one, just leave that there as you leave. Um, you can write in it if you want, if that makes you feel better. Or not. Don't worry about it. Matthew 25. Because here, here's what's going to happen. If we pray for one, if we intentionally ask God, God, give us one person to share your love with. And we create invitational moments because we want these people to become followers of Christ. We want them to have centered lives on Christ. If we actually desire that, to see other people become followers of Jesus and to see other people become disciples, if we actually desire that, here's what's gonna happen as a church. That praying for one will release exponential growth by investing the love that God gave into those he wants to save. He will, he will bring those the, he will bring us to the people that he needs us to share his love with. But when we invest the love that we've been given, it will begin to change other people. So Matthew 25, verse 14 says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in, por in proportion to their abilities he then left on his trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they used the money. The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So how now I will give you uh, many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. 
The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've invested, and I've earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I had harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. Those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're like, Jesus, calm down, man. Holy cow. Right? What a story. And this story is found in Matthew 25 where, where Jesus is talking. He's using parables to talk about the coming, of the, the return of Christ. That although Jesus starts, what Jesus starts at the cross and the resurrection, he's going to complete upon his return. And so he's teaching his people in Matthew 25, right before he goes to the cross. Right before he goes to the cross, he's teaching them how to live life when he's gone. He's saying, here's how you should live life. Between what I'm about to do on the, in the cross and in, the, and in my resurrection, and what I'm going to bring to completion when I return. Here's how you should live life. And many times, actually, I'm so glad that the New Living Translation doesn't translate it this way. Many times, the Bible will, tra- the people will translate this as talents instead of bags of money or bags of gold. And what, what we do is we read Matthew 25 and say, okay, God, give us, God has given me, my, my Western American kind of mindset, he's given me talents and abilities and I need to go invest them wisely. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is teaching that he has given us an investment of a gift according to our abilities. Not because we have abilities, but according to our abilities. He said, okay, here's your five, here's your three, here's your one. And what happens when they invest them wisely? They double they double their money. Two times, Jesus praises the servant. One time, he scolds him, according to the story. And so the, the two that you find here, you begin to say, okay, well, obviously, you know, we're human, so we want to be on the non-scolding side of this story. Isn't that how we typically go, right? Just me? Okay, I, I'm the only one who doesn't like to be scolded by God? Okay, totally cool, that's fine but we tend to go to the one with the two and say, okay, okay what is Jesus teaching here through the through this story? What is Jesus teaching? He's saying when we invest wisely, invest what we have been given, we will see results. And this is how we should live between the resurrection and the return of Christ. So here we are interacting with this and say, okay, God, what, what do you want us to do? And the major question the master's asking us is what did you do with what you've been given? What, you, what did you do with what I gave you? I gave you something. I gave you something. And what did you do with it? We see all throughout the New Testament, there are many responses to the grace of God. There are many responses to the gifts of God. 
There are many responses to when Jesus gives us something. It could be his love. It could be a certain amount of, uh, of promises. It could be a certain like, uh, provision in some sort of aspect of your life. It could be anything. But he's simply going to ask you today, what did you do with what you've been given? And I'd propose today that you were actually given something way more than money could ever give you. You were given something way more than any sort of promise from any other relationship that you have. You were given and lavished upon the love of God. And he's going to ask you one day, what did you do with this love of God? This is such a natural thing for us as humans. I, I got a, an auto mechanic that I love. Anyone have one, an auto mechanic that you love? Do you know how many times I've talked about my auto mechanic? Like, I love Rob. Rob is awesome, right? He's just so cool. Totally, totally cool. He, like, he will make sure I save the most amount of money possible. Who does that as an auto mechanic, right? Good, honest auto mechanics. You don't bring it to the shop and they try something, charge you for it, and then try something else when it actually works? No, he's awesome, and he does great work. I love Rob. I tell everybody about Rob. <laughs> this is natural and normal for us as humans. But yet, when we talk about evangelism, and we talk about telling others about the love of God, we downplay it. We downplay it. It's just natural for us to talk about about the experience that we've had with God. When, when we are changed by Christ, truly changed by Christ, you can't help but to talk about it. Why? Because you're humans and you talk about your auto mechanics a lot. You talk about your, your kid's school when they knock it out of the park. You talk about things that matter and mean to you. And so he's just simply asking you the question, what did you do with what I gave you? If you've experienced the love of God, you're going to be changed by the love of God. And you will begin, through the love that you've been given, let it flow through you to others. And you will grow. And so this point of the story is, okay, how do we live between the, the cross and the, the return of Christ? We intentionally live our lives. Because there will be days that you need to shop. And there will be days that you need to fix your cars. And there's normal, normal lives that we live. And he's saying, as you go and you live your normal life, make sure that you understand that life is a gift from God. And you begin to tell other people about your gift. So what did you do with what I've been giving you? But here's the thing. When we talk like this and we understand, okay, when I do this, the church will grow, we begin to, like our inner cynics, like good New Englanders do, we say, ah, uh, this is fake. This is fake. But I think what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that, no, you should expect growth. You should expect healthy things to grow. And we need to be ready for that and prepared for that. Because if the master gives us a gift, we need to steward it well. And so just a few observations this morning from the question, what did you do with what I've been giving you? If we need to maximize our opportunities and not waste them, um, we, it's not about doing something wrong. It's, not, it's about doing nothing. Is what, is what the master talks to the servant about. It's not about doing something wrong. It's about doing nothing. So what type of thinking do we need to change? And so just a few observations from this. Number one, doubling our investment isn't about addition. It's about multiplication. Doubling is not about addition. It's not about getting this room full. It's about you multiplying yourself. 
So look at what it says. Very, very easy. Verse 19, actually, through 21. After a long time, their master returned from the strip, called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward and said, five, with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags to invest and I have earned five more. It's not a simple idea. It's about taking what you've invested and creating growth from it. And so doubling isn't about addition. It's about multiplication. But, but here's the thing. I hear all the time from people all over the church world, not just, not just our church, but in our church sometimes too, is that a lot of this language, this conversation right here, and I'm, I'm going to push a little bit on this because I want to make sure that we work this out as a church, that this conversation about telling others about Jesus because we've been shown love is immature. And our mature people are waiting for something to do. Our, this is considered an immature conversation, and our mature people were waiting. Now, I want to just kindly tease that out with you for a second. Because this is what Jesus asks us to do in Matthew 28. He says, hey, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of Jesus, right? That wasn't to the pastor of the 12. It's not like he called Peter as the leader of the 12 and said, hey, I want you to make disciples and these guys are going to help you. Did he say that? No, he didn't. He said, everyone go and make disciples. Everyone do it. And I think what ends up happening is that when we are called and challenged to actually do something, we begin to tease that out as I'm not sure we want to go do that. Multiplication is maturity. This is maturity. It's not about knowing more. It's not about understanding more. It's not about how much you pray. This is prayer. And when you begin to do that, you will see growth. It's about you multiplying, not about adding people to a, uh, to a room. We already know this. We've already done this work over the last couple years together, is that this room isn't the church, that you're the church. And when the kingdom actually, when we actually engage with the kingdom well, we're going to see multiplication because we're doing the work of God. And so he's saying here, hey, show up. Let's celebrate together. Let's celebrate together because this is Christian maturity, obedience to Christ, doing the things that he says to do is maturity. I've used this illustration before, and you've probably heard it in multiple places. It's not a new one. But when I tell Jaden, hey, Jaden, can you go clean your room, buddy? And I go, and I go into his room, and I, clean, and I see a room that's messy. He says, oh, I memorized what you told me to do. He doesn't say that. Oh, I, I, oh hey, Dad. Um, Oh, yeah, I, you know, I got, I got my friends together, and we did a word study on what the word clean means. And we found out a lot about that word. And guess what the word clean means? It means clean. Guess what it meant back in the first century? It meant clean. In this room, oh, there's my, my father's house has many rooms. And he doesn't do that. No, no, no. Hey, buddy, go, can you go clean your room? Because we like to have a tidy house. We like to do these things. We like to teach responsibility. Can you go clean your room? Yeah, sure, I'll go clean my room. There's no prayer about it. There's no 
word studies about it. And yet many times, we spend more time reading and memorizing than we actually do doing. And that's challenging. I've been there. I'd rather, I'd rather read, you know, read my Bible with my cup of coffee on a, on a Monday morning than perhaps go out of my way to talk to someone I don't know or maybe to engage with someone I do know and share the love of God with them. It's, it's, it's work. We talked about that last week. It's work to do that. But God has asked us to be a part of something, to see lives changed by Christ as we participate in the restoration of all things. This is how he's putting the world back together. It's through your multiplication. It's through your overflow. It's through your pouring out because you really like Jesus. And so it's about multiplication. Don't just memorize the word. Do the word. Do it. Live life this way because Jesus said this is the best way to live life. In many areas, but specifically this one. He says, so doubling isn't about addition, it's about multiplication. Number two, doubling isn't about fear, it's about investment. And so this is what he says, the servant with one bag of silver came and said, master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. Can I just teach you a leadership lesson? Don't say that to your boss. It goes poorly when you, when you say that to your boss. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant, gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why did you deposit my money in the bank? At least I've gotten some interest for it. So the master's looking for his servants to work in such a bold manner, such a bold manner, that he can tell you, well done. Now, again, we love that one phrase. When we look at this verse, we say, I just want Jesus to tell me, well done, you good and faithful servant, when I go to heaven. I mean, I talk about that a lot when I do, when I do funerals or when I engage with people and I hear about their desires and their heart to be a servant of Christ. I say, I just, you know, we love Billy Graham. We hear that all the time. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we pursue that. We love that, but that verse is found in the context of doing a lot of things well. And so we begin to invest with what we've been given, which happens to be the love of God. It's not about fear. Look at the heart of this, this, this servant towards their master. It is one of fear. Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Fear will create paralysis. And many times I feel... And I fear that Christians think more of God as a harsh man than as a good father. We think of him as a harsh dad. You know why? Because many times we struggle with our own parents that way. Many of us struggle with our own parents in similar ways and we just cast that same image that we struggle with onto our father in heaven. He's supposed to be the good dad full of grace and mercy and kindness sending his son to create a way for you. And yet we see him as one to be feared. And so we better do things right in order to make sure everything's good. And if I don't do things that are right, I'm going to get scolded. And so a lot of times it creates paralysis in our spiritual lives. And really he's just saying, I want to celebrate with you. I want to celebrate with you. And yet fear of God and, and, and under, of wrong understanding, a bad theology about the grace of God will cause us to be paralyzed. Fears about our church changing. Fears about our, our lives being used in different ways. 
It's invigorating. Maybe fear of, of actually being used by God in different aspects. Of us actually changing. Fear is not what caused this success in these servants, but investing what we've been, what we've been given. Now, we've all been given different things according to our abilities. He's saying, you right now is what I need in order to make this thing take place. You right now, today. Your personality, because why? I created you in my image. I created you like you are. And so those times that you like, go out and rage at somebody, that's, I, got, I got you. I have grace for that. The, the times that you are, are passive and you want to pull away, I got grace for that. The times where you over control and you take things out on people, I, there's grace for that. Why? Because I created you and I know you. And so instead of us having a bad theology about God's grace, we need to have a good theology about his closeness and about how he wants to engage with us. And that when we have a deep theology about God's grace and God's goodness, that he is a good dad, when we have a good, whole, and healthy understanding of our relationship with him, our adoption in him, this will feel a whole lot better because we're not gaining his approval about whether or not we do it or not. We're simply living with dad. So doubling isn't about fear, it's about investment. And so we fear things all the time, but God is continuing to do it. Um, what I love is, uh, you know, if, if you ever had a kid ride a roller coaster for the first time, do you ever see that? You've been blessed if you have, right? Because it's like, horrific for about 10 seconds and then the last like minute and a half everything's fine right it's awesome when you see your kid tackle anything that gives him like straight fear it's awesome and that's exactly what God's doing when I think about the story of the apostle Paul the apostle Paul is the apostle Paul because Jesus met him on the road to Damascus but then who was the first person he met after he met Jesus we don't think about this, but in Acts 9 and 10 is a man named Ananias. Ananias had plenty of opportunity to be scared to death of Paul because Paul was just working as a full-time Christian murderer. You ever, hear that? you ever hear that job? No one's hiring for that anymore. It's not a good one. But that's, that was Paul's job. I'm going to take on the opportunity to murder as many Christians as possible so that I can be a good Jewish person. Ananias had plenty of opportunity to be scared to death of Paul, and yet God just knocks on his door. says, hey, Ananias, I need you to go pay attention to somebody and go spend some time with somebody. Who is it? It's Paul. Oh, yeah, the dude that's going to kill me as soon as I open the door? Yeah, that guy. All right, I just need you to go spend a day with him. Fear will cause us to be paralyzed. If Ananias doesn't do that, who knows what we have? But I believe... Ananias was a person, and he struggled with that just as much as you and I would have. Be like, hey, you know that guy Osama bin Laden? Go knock on his door. No, I'm not going to do that. Hey, go walk around in the Middle East. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. I got a buddy that's serving in Turkey right now as a missionary. He can't tell me that he's serving as a missionary in Turkey. Fear, we have plenty of opportunity to fear, but Jesus is asking us to invest. And lastly, doubling isn't about fear. 
uh, isn't about strategy, it's about stewardship. Again, what the cynicism in us is going to push us against is saying, pastor just wants the church to grow. Pastor just wants the church to grow. It's a, it's a growth strategy. It's a church growth strategy. And I'd say, no, it's not. It's about us stewarding people that God has put into your life. God has put certain people into your life. And he's asked you to begin to share the love of God with them because they have a love that they're missing out on. They have a way of seeing the world that they're missing out on. He's put you there on purpose. Not so that we can be angry, but so that so we can be loving, so that we can have joy, so that we can cause some life to happen in places that are dead. He's given us this opportunity to steward well with what we've been given. We see it in verse 28. It says, he ordered, take the money from the servant, give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have abundance. It's a simple truth strategy. Doesn't that sound like you should be cynical of that? If there is a house salesman standing in front of you and said, if you give, if you give there will be more given to you, how many are standing there with their arms folded? Let's come on. Let's be honest this morning. We can do that. I'm the first one that's saying, this guy is like full of junk. No way. He's fake. But yet this is the story that Jesus is teaching. If we invest what we have and steward well who we have, then God will be continue to see that growth. We see that in Acts 2. We talk about Acts 2 throughout different times of the year, but Acts 2, 42 through 47 talks about what the church does. And it says this ultimately at the end. It says, the Lord added to those who were being saved. He added to their number, to their fellowship, to their church, to their group of people, daily those who he was saving. So again, what's teaching there, what God is teaching there at Acts 2 is saying he is doing work in the lives of people. He's gonna do it without you, with or without you. He's going to do it with or without you. He wants to do it with you. And he is adding to those numbers daily, those he is saving. Say, okay, God, how would you want me to be a part of that? Pray for one. God, give me one person that you share your love with. You're already sharing your love with them. Put me in their path to connect the dots. Put me in their path to change the course of their life. Let me be the Ananias so that we could have another Paul. It's about stewarding well with what we've been given in the context that you're in. This is not immature Christianity. I would say that you've never grown so fast than when you actually do what Jesus is teaching here. I challenge you on that. Let this type of action be the same as your devotion time, as your prayer time. This is a spiritual discipline just as much as prayer, as giving, as going to church on a Sunday, as anything that you do. Talking to people and sharing, them, sharing with them the love of God is as much a discipline as anything else. And yet we put it in the immature category all the time. And so we say, God, how would you use us? And he's going to ask you, what did you do with what you've been given? You know what we've been given? As a church, a lot of chairs. A lot of chairs. And right now, we, you know, we got about 
a little over 400 people on a Sunday, back and forth. Got about 750 people that'll come to church here over the course of a month. But you know what God can't do anything with? An empty chair. He can't save one. I'm sure he could save it and put it back together if it broke. I'm sure he could do that. But an empty chair doesn't have a heart. Say, what, what could God do if we actually took him at his word? We've done this a lot as a church over the last two years together. Say, God, I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to see if it actually comes true. You know what the first year we did that with? We did that with salvation. Many of us saw massive life change two years ago during this Lenten season. We preached a sermon series called Recovering Redemption, and literally I had grown men crying for days because the gospel was changing their heart. Last year we talked about community and how people were beginning to find community although they've been isolated. We saw people take God at his word when it came to their giving. And people, the stories, they could come back and say, hey, look, I don't, I don't, I don't know how this works. I love that. Like, this, is how it works. this is what's so funny, is that when people start stories with me, say, I, I don't know how this works. Like, Neither do I, buddy. I just, I'm just do, doing what, it's, what it says. I don't know how it works, but I know that God's promises are real. I know that God's promises are true. So the question comes down to, what did you do with what, with what he gave you? And that's the question of Matthew 25. If we're going to live well between what Christ started at the resurrection and what he's going to finish upon his return, he's going to ask you, what did I do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? What I love about this is that the, 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 the reward is constantly, twice in this passage, is let's celebrate together. Your reward isn't payment. Your reward is heaven. It's God's joy. And if we get the joy, he gets the glory. All throughout the last three years, Paul, Paul's a, a, an elder in the back. He stands in, he's standing in the back right now, intimidating us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Paul's the most intimidating person, the most unintimidating person you ever meet. No, don't sit down. You're fine. <laughs> he sits down to me. Paul would always, t- Paul, Paul will, him and I will have per- you know, conversations throughout the week, and, but he would always say this to me, Ephesians 3. He'd always, I, I always love when men of God quote scripture to me. It's a um, it's helpful reminder. He always said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly we can ask or imagine. Like what you're asking God right now is too small. Can you believe that? What you're asking for from God right now is something that he's going to blow away with what he can give you. That's grace. That's power, that's joy. Can you believe that the God of the universe wants to give us something more than we could even imagine for ourselves? And yet we sit in churches all the time and think if we could just read more or if we could just pray some more. Now I get that, I love that. We do prayer meetings and we we read the Bible together. 
But I'm saying, man, what if we could apply that same thinking, that same thinking to something that God might want to do in the life of our family and friends? What would our church look like? What would Southern New England look like if we had churches doing this? Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, you came in here today. Many of you came in with painful circumstances, and you're just trying to get by. And he's saying, now, to him who is able to do far more than you could ask or imagine. That's his message to you today. Many of you came in here, and your life is great. Your life is awesome. And he's saying, now, to him who is able to do far more than you could ever ask or imagine, we give glory to him. Can we be a church that gives glory to God and glory to God alone? Can we do that? And if we can do that, God says that he's going to do far more than we could ask or imagine. I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to be a part of a church like that. So if we want to be a church that only God can get the credit for, are we going to do what he asks us to do? the question today. And I pray that the answer to that question is yes.